decisions are made in a spirit of unity focused on the mission of the gospel, which is vital considering we are a declining religion and a declining faith in the West. And us fighting over things that are important but lesser than that, I don't think is appropriate. But if you don't believe me, go back to what we talked about Sardis last week. Well, let's talk about something a little more cheery. And let's talk about heaven. Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21. We're actually going to read the first seven verses of Revelation 21. And then we're going to skip to chapter 2 and read the first five verses. So we'll do a little bit of skipping. Um, again, what we're doing on Sunday evenings is we're looking at major themes in Revelation. Uh, the theme of heaven actually takes us all the way back to chapter 1, where John gets the vision of Christ upon his throne. And of course, it's emphasized in 4 and 5 and elsewhere. But uh, we want to look more uh, to what awaits us. I will say, I've preached an entire sermon on heaven before. We did an apologetic series uh, two, three years ago. Uh, and we looked at the issue of heaven. We looked at the issue of hell. So I, I'm not going to repeat myself what we talked about there. So you can get on our website and go to the podcast, YouTube page, to find all that information. So with that, if you will stand with me out of there. John the Apostle writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chapter 21, verse 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepares a bride of one or other. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more, neither shall there be mourning, or crying, or pain anymore, and the former things have passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To thirsty I will give the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage, and I will be his God. He will be my son. Skip over to chapter 22. And the angel showed me the river of water of life, Christ crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, in the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with his twelve kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit to each month. The leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. His servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more, and they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their life, and they will reign forever and ever. So Our Father, we thank you for your love and your mercy. Help us to understand your word. Help us to anticipate what awaits your kingdom come and your will being done. We long for such a world. Uh, heaven and earth be reunited. So open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and ears and our mouth and our hands and our feet. Yeah, decrease as you can increase. Name so we pray. Amen. It was May the 11th, 2011. A date that I will never forget. It was kind of a late morning, around lunchtime. I get a call at the parsonage. Brother Kyle, Brother Kyle. Yes. Did you know today the world is going to end? You could hear the tears and the panic on the other end of the phone. And I said, yeah, I did know today the world was going to end. At least that's what I heard. Isn't it exciting? No, 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 this isn't exciting. I'm not ready for it anymore. There's so many things I want to do. No, 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 look. I think the dude making this, this prediction is, 
think he's wrong. But I do hope this one time in his life, he's right. Don't you? But I was certainly ready. My whole family was certainly well. I was ready for them, I guess. And so I had a good pastor buddy of mine who grew up in uh, the North. He's a Yankee from Detroit. Bless his heart. Pray for him. And and he was he was a, a big city guy in a little small town, right? And and uh, he had never read or uh, even watched the Left Behind series. Can you believe that? There there are people out there who ain't done that. What is that? I'll deal with you later. Uh, but, but, so I said, I'll tell you what. Since the world is supposed to end tonight, how about we go over to your house, we can cook now, we can have a big dinner, all this sort of stuff, and we will watch the first Left Behind movie. It's a clean movie. Oh, you know, our, our youngins where we're running around. I think man was pregnant with, when was she born? She, she, that was, she pregnant with, with the second. If I get my dates wrong, she'll correct me. Uh, and for me, but uh, so so you know we, we we got a whole family event, two family here, and, and uh, now Jesus was supposed to come back at about six p.m. Now I don't know if that's Eastern Standard Time, Central Standard Time, or how any of that works, but we're on Central Standard Time, anticipating Jesus to come back at six. We're watching the movie, dinner's been eaten, and we're at the point in the movie where the rapture happens. Planes are falling out of the sky. People are missing their clothes. Dogs without their owner. Uh, lawnmower still running. All this sort of stuff, you know it is. And all of a sudden, there in that small town of West Kentucky, the house begins to rain. The roar <laughs> over our head, heads gets louder and louder and louder, and we start to look at each other. <laughs> that guy was right. It ain't funny no more. <laughs> it ain't funny. It's funny. It ain't so funny now. We all ran to the front door, and lo and behold, someone was flying a helicopter, a private helicopter over us, and was looking for a place to land, and landed in the church uh, parking lot. He lived in a parking lot. And what happened was, this, this church is about a 20-minute drive from Beaver Dam, if you've ever been there. And I guess these, these you know, wealthy rednecks, they didn't want to drive to Beaver Dam. I mean, who does? And so they flew down there with a helicopter. Now, if I owned a helicopter, I would have flown. Now, I don't even like heights. And, but the problem is they're in Beaver Dam, but they want to eat at the Fordsville Diner because there's nothing finer than the Fordsville Diner, right? That is copyright 2011. And so, so what they decided was is to get in their helicopter, fly over, which is a five-minute flight, I'm guessing, and, and then they realized, we ain't got nowhere to land this thing in Fordsville. And so they landed in the church parking lot right when the world was supposed to end. <laughs> now, do you remember that in May 12, 2011? Anyone remember these billboards? Millions of dollars spent by Family Radio on this very prediction. Now, how in the world do we get at the end of the world on May 11, 2011? Spoiler alert, May 21st, 2011. It didn't happen. So, uh, I'm sorry to, to disappoint. But you can see there, the Bible guarantees it. In the meantime, you should cry mightily unto God. You want to remember this? Why do we always have to forget? Well, let me see if I can prove to you from the Bible, okay? Let's start here. That that numbers in, or, or words and numbers and whatnot in the Bible are symbolic, right? Numbers in particular are symbolic. I, I think, uh, in a general sense, we agree with that. Right? If you've been with us on Wednesday nights, we've been talking about Genesis. Uh, going through Genesis, the number 7 and 10 are everywhere. The first verse of the Bible, the seven words, the 
second verse of the Bible is 14 words in Hebrew. Right? And, and, and you get seven times things are repeated. Oh, you know, probably about seven things are repeated seven times. It, it's, it's incredible. The emphasis on seven. Ten is equally important throughout the Bible. Right? This is why Jesus will say, forgive one another. How many times? Seventy times seven. Now, I know you were thinking, I didn't come to church to be mad. You're going to have to do some math with evil, okay? <laughs> Seventy is seven times ten, right? Okay? So, 70 times 7 is 7 times 10 times 7. That's how many times you should forgive someone. Right? So, the emphasis is again on the spot number. So, let's see if, see if we can come up with Here's the equation. 5 represents the atonements. Why? Because Harold had considered it. 10 represents completeness. Now, I'm not in, in necessarily disagreeing with that. 17 represents heaven. Why? I don't know. We're just going to roll with it, okay? <laughs> Now you see here, we are making some presumptions, <coughs> but we have to assume these numbers are consistent throughout the Bible. So let's take this equation. Why this equation? Because here we have said this is going to be our equation. 5 times 10 times 17, so you've got the atonement, you've got completion, and you have heaven, right? 5 times 10 times 17 times 5 times 10 times 17. Why are we doing that? I don't know, because here we can't be coming to do it. You get... It's not showing. It's not showing the picture. Okay, but well, just, just go back to the, the two Peter one then. Uh, my, my big beef and what Harold Camping does here, so you're not going to get a picture of Harold Camping, my, my bad, Google it, is that verse is what he says is okay, one day equals a thousand years. That's how he does his math. There's a problem with that from, from two Peter. It says a thousand years is one day. Now that is math. You can't do that like that. Because you have to decide, is it one day or is it a thousand years? Is it a thousand years or is it one day? I mean, anyone can look at this. Not to mention on his daily radio and uh, a TV show called Open Forum, people will call in and say, what do you do about what Jesus said in Matthew 24? No one knows the day or the hour. Well, Camping not only knew the day, he knew the hour that Christ was going to return. Well, as you can imagine, um, this didn't work out. Uh, leading up to it, you got the uh, you got the bill working for millions of dollars being spent. But after all, if you're going to be caught up in the rapture tomorrow, what do you care how much money you spend today? Millions of dollars were spent in promoting the end of the world for this, and it didn't happen. Many gathered on May 21st, 2011, and it didn't happen. Well, 
guess what Harold Camping said? See, the story didn't end on that day. He said that this was the beginning of five months of birth pains, if you will. So you get the rapture, and then for five months you're going to get colossal earthquakes and everything else is going to end. Until the world will end on October 21st, 2011. So when Jesus didn't gather the elect on in May, he said, well, he did show up spiritually. That's usually what, what these false prophets say. But rest assured, October 21st, 2011, Jesus is going to come back in judgment, and we are going to be caught up. The rest of y'all are just going to die. Well, guess what didn't happen? It didn't happen yet. Christ did not return. Judgment did not fall. But we need to know here, when it comes to Harold Kemper, this was not his first real prediction. He first predicted that September the 6th, 1994, uh, Christ would return, which was then revised to September 29th, 1994, and then revised again to October the 2nd, 1994. Well, I'm starting to sense a pattern here. If you didn't get it right the first three times, you're probably not going to get it the next three. Well, as we've seen in the last six weeks, Joe Pemping stands in a long line of failed prophets. But in terms of this text, the only thing that, that I think we need to see is that if we were to summarize the, the storyline of Scripture in a single word, but that may be an oversimplification, but just work with us. If we, if we could summarize the Bible into a single word, what is it that the Bible really offers us? From Genesis to Revelation, in a single word, I think that word would be reconciliation. From Genesis to Revelation, from the fall to consummation. I believe it is about reconciliation. From the minute we uh, declared our independence in sin and wanted to build our own kingdom, we have been at a, in a cosmic war against our Creator. Yet despite that reality, despite our division with Him, He still has sought and will and fulfill His desire for reconciliation. So let's start here with heaven and earth united. Now, this is a bit of a theological background, but I think it's going to be important for what it is we want to see here this evening. Now, as you know, the Bible opens up in a garden. Now, Eden is a garden, or, or there is a garden in a land called Eden. But, but the main emphasis here is in this garden. And there, you may remember, mankind and God are united. They walk together in the cool of the day. Remember that scene in chapter 3? The implication is that this was a regular occurrence. Can you imagine Waking up one morning, getting a text message saying, hey, when you get up and you're ready, let's go for our morning job. And there's Jesus, right? Wouldn't you like that? that maybe you would like. Some of y'all may, may not like that. You sinners, you need to repent. But for the rest of us saints, we certainly would enjoy that. Uh, now, we need to see that the imagery of the Garden of Eden shows up and is later associated with heaven. We've done this before, so I don't want to spend forever on it. Can I just give you just, just a few, few proofs of it? Uh, for, for the sake of argument and uh, keep it brief for the sake of time. First of all, there are uh, uh, the jewels we see in Eden, we see in heaven. For example, uh, in Genesis 2.12, it says, The gold in that land is good, bedlam, and onyx stone are there. You'll find all three of these described in the new heavens and the earth. For example, look at the gold. Revelation 21, the wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold. Also 21, 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each of the, of the gates made of a single pearl, and the streets of the city were made of pure gold. So where we get the idea of the streets of gold, right? We're going to walk the streets of gold. Onyx is used, uh, another one there from uh, 
Genesis 2, Onyx shows up in Revelation 21 as well, that one of the stones named, specifically named, is that of Onyx. So the same jewels you see in the garden, you will then see in the new heavens and new earth. And then there is the tree of life. Obviously, a central uh, a part of the Eden story is the tree of life. So we see there in Genesis 2, the tree of life is in the midst of the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Well, guess what we find? We read it in chapter 22. Angel showed me the river, the water of life. Um, and then what do we see through the middle of the street of the city? As there's a river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit. Notice that in the garden, you have a tree and you have rivers. In the new heavens and new earth, you have the tree of life and with it rivers. One other thing worth mentioning here, again, this is just an oversimplification, just for the sake of making a point, but not spending forever on it. We see in the Garden of Eden a temple that is not a building. The garden itself is the temple of God. Again, we have spent significant time on that in the past, and I don't want to belabor the point here this evening. Uh, you can go back to our study of, of Genesis and other times we've looked at it. But the Garden of Eden is where God dwells with mankind. In, in a nutshell, that is what a temple is. Adam serves as the first priest. We spent a lot of time on that subject, so we don't need to repeat it here. But in Revelation 21 22, it says, I saw no temple in the city, this is New Jerusalem. For its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. So you don't have a building, a temple building, if we take all this very literal. Um, but rather you have God dwelling with mankind in the new heavens and new earth as it is in the garden. The whole point of this is to say that when God created everything, and particularly in the garden, what you had was heaven and earth united. So there wasn't this great cosmic uh, separation where we're tempted to build towers and everything else. No, heaven and earth were united. That doesn't mean heaven and earth were one, but they were united. However, as we all know, sin entered the world, and we have the division of heaven and earth. The fall ruins all of this. Just like when adultery rips the unity of a marriage, so too taking for ourselves our own kingdom, we chose to be separated from God. This separation means that heaven, that is the dwelling place of God, is defined by holiness, beauty, and the presence of God. The earth, on the other hand, the dwelling place of man, is defined by its opposite, sin, ugliness, corruption, and injustice. And the story of Scripture, in essence, is the bridging and the bringing of these two together. Think about it. Following the fall, the Bible shows us how a portion of heaven can dwell on earth. Now, we get this, don't we, in the story of the temple. What the temple is, is a sanctified space on earth where heaven can come down. So if you read the, the stories of the dedication of the tabernacle, or the dedication of Solomon's temple, you get these fantastic imagery and events that take place that clearly demonstrate that God has come down to dwell with man. Look at the story of Mount Sinai with the thundering and the rumblings and the earthquakes and, and, and the lightning and all that. All of that is wild imagery showing that God has come down to be with man. When Moses ascends into the cloud and later descends, his face shines with the Shekinah glory of God. Why? Because when he was there at the top of the mountain, heaven and earth were briefly united. Now the temple represents God's presence among his people. So to come to the temple was to approach heaven itself. That is the presence of God. In order to do that, the issue that separated man and God to begin with must be dealt with, and that, of course, is sin. And this was done by sacrificing a spotless lamb. I trust we are familiar with the storyline. 
Now, this, of course, reaches its climax in the New Testament, right? In John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh, and what's the word there? We've done this a thousand times. It is the Greek word tabernacle. Jesus became flesh, so the incarnated word, the divine Son of God, became one of us. Heaven has come down and has tabernacled among us. All of a sudden, the space by which God can engage humanity on earth has gotten much larger. Because now, the presence of God isn't limited to a building or even behind a curtain. And now, he dwells in flesh. He tabernacles among us. And notice that we have seen his glory. It is not a term we use to describe the earth, is it? It's a term we would use to describe God in his presence. What is it that John the Baptist tells us a few verses later? The Holy, the Lamb of God. What is he going to do? He's going to take away the sins of the world. Why is this so important? Christ comes as the temple, as its priest, and as its sacrifice. All of these metaphors come together into a single person. So as the lamb, he washes away sin. As the priest, he offers his, himself before the Father. And as the temple, it is God's presence among his people. Because when Christ comes, he brings with him a kingdom. He reconciles mankind with God and the earth with heaven. This is why the story, stories of Jesus casting out demons, healing the blind, and raising the dead are so important. What it is that we are to see? When Jesus says that the kingdom of God has come upon you, he's saying that, 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 that though divided heaven and earth, in Christ they are starting to come back together. For one who is a man, Christ, fully divine, without compromising a single aspect of his nature, is bringing it all together. Of course, this requires his sacrifice. He does it on the cross. Now, the work of the church continues this work, isn't it? Right? This is why Paul makes a big deal, and Christ and Luke make a big deal about us being dwelt with the Spirit. The Spirit only dwells in the temple. Now, you are the temple of God. And, and I feel like there should be a footnote there. Act like it. Right? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, we kind of forget that part, don't we? You are what people see of the gospel. And if we are the temple of God, just as Christ had to cleanse the temple because it was shameful, if he were to show up here, how would, how would we have to do the same thing to our own temple? So we have heaven and earth united in the beginning, divided after the fall, and then finally what it is we see here is heaven and earth reunited. See, throughout much of Revelation, God is a distant being who sits up on the throne. Have you ever really thought about that? That, that here God is sending judgment, God is receiving prayers. God is responding to his angels or sending angels, right? But, but, but there's still that distance there. And this is why John is forced to go up to heaven to witness the workings of heaven and its effect on earth. But the priority of Revelation is the reuniting of heaven and earth, which cannot happen until the same thing that had to be dealt with with you for there to be reconciliation must also happen to the earth. You've got to deal with sin. You've got to deal with injustice and corruption and oppression and all that sort of stuff. So this is why Revelations, we talked about last week, really builds up the, the evil of empire, right? Babylon, the great, and, and the harlot that rise, and the dragon that influences, and the false prophet that, that corrupts the economic system, all of that. And what must be done is that sin must be cleansed. It will either be cleansed at the cross, or it will be cleansed in judgment. In Revelation, we see the judgment. 
So, so we get these images of meteors falling out of the sky, great earthquakes, and all of this is that God's presence is being felt in judgment on the great day of the Lord. But after that, right? Actually, we saw this when we talked about judgment. Uh, this I heard that seemed to be loud voice of the great multitude, the head of crime. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. His judgments are true and just. He has judged the great prostitute and corrupt the earth for immorality, has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Notice here, it is the part of the gospel story that he cleansed the earth. He does the same thing to you and I at the cross. The same work. This is at a cosmic level, however. So after these things, what is it that we see in chapter 21 and 22? It is not a story of the saints ascending into heaven. In Revelation, John shows us the picture of heaven descending upon the earth. Or to say that, once again, heaven and earth are united again. Look again at verse 2. I put it up there for you. I saw the holy city in New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride. Now you see the mixing of metaphors here. But you see that picture of, of, of the new heavens and the new earth and new Jerusalem coming down. Now this is consistent with what Jesus told us in the Gospel of John, isn't it? In John chapter 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. For not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. Well, it makes sense. He's, he's been a little busy, right? I mean, HGTV couldn't put on a show quite this good, right? And a lot of renovation going on here, and he is going to bring it down. Thus, that is why we see the descriptions of New Jerusalem mirroring both Eden, that is the earth, and heaven. The New Jerusalem is the merging of heaven and earth. I think we can put it this way, the picture will come up. Reunited and feel so good. I found this one funny. I know that he didn't sing that song. You would cast away as Wilson? No? Okay. Bring one of the greatest boobs of all time. For the three of you that have seen Castaway, I hope you appreciate that hard joke I spent three seconds looking up. <laughs> Reunited and it feels so good. Get the song in your head, we'll move on. Okay. But that's the storyline of scripture. That heaven is more than just an escape of the earth. It is the reunification of heaven and earth. Where God and man will dwell together. And that is why you will see, particularly in chapter 21, this talk of, I will be their God, and they will be my son. This is the unity of, 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 of earth and heaven, of mankind and God. And this leads, of course, to the joy of heaven. Now, when it comes to exploring the question of heaven, we often ask the same questions, don't we? What will it be like? What age will I be? Right, so you have teenagers asking that question because they know they're in the prime of their life and it's all downhill from there. And they want to know, you know, am I going to be back here? Those on the other end of the spectrum, you're thinking, please tell me I won't need a wheelchair or a cane or fake teeth. Right, you, you, you want to know, am I going to look like when I was 25, right? And uh, had muscle or whatever it might be. What will we be doing in heaven? I mean, eternity seems like a long time. Is it going to feel like the DMV? Uh, when we meet our loved ones, right? This is usually, right, whenever we really think of heaven, we want to be united with, with our loved ones. We've talked about all those questions in the past. Now, although Scripture provides, I think, an answer to each of these, it primarily shows us what we will discover in heaven. And that's actually what I want to spend the rest of our time on. 
The first thing we will discover in heaven is rest. Rest. We see this with the martyr saints in chapter 6, verse 11. And they each are given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers should be complete. You were killed as they have been. Notice here that, that here are your martyr saints under the altar. What is Christ gives them a robe? What does he say? Now is the time to rest. In heaven you will find rest. In chapter 14, we see the same thing. Heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, this blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Listen, indeed, says the Spirit, they, that they may rest. There's, there's something that's good news and bad along the way. It's really good news. And we understand that naturally, right? Some are looking for the rest from disease that is destroying their bodies. Rest from a decaying world that is growing increasing wickedness. But it is rest nonetheless. However, what you find in Revelation is that there is no rest for the wicked because they do not have the hope that is in the New Jerusalem. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest. Now remember the, the original context of this. These churches are suffering greatly, and Revelation describes these sufferings from being from the beast and the dragon. And in the presence of God, the saint finds rest. Now the good news of the gospel, I would add, is that you and I can enjoy that rest right now. And that's what the writer of Hebrews says, isn't it? Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Notice here that we strive right now to find the rest that is in Christ. I always like to point out that the, the longings and the joys that we wait for in heaven can be ours in real time right now if we are hidden in Christ who rules and reigns. Not only will we discover rest, we will discover peace. Peace is the great longing of the human heart. All around us is drama and chaos, personally, corporately, relationally, nationally. Our first peek into the new heavens and new earth betrays this, doesn't it? Now, if I can look at chapter 21, verse 1, I saw a new heavens and new earth. The first heaven and first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. What? Right? That's a lot of land that you can own, right? There's some of y'all that's good. I don't know where the fish are going to be, so I, I don't know. But no sea. And you can take that literal. I think we talked about that some last week. Or we can take that figuratively. Look at chapter 20, verse 13. It says, the sea gave up the dead and all those who were in it. So, so what is the sea here in chapter 20? Is it figurative? If so, maybe it's figurative in chapter 20. Or maybe, maybe I'm wrong over here. I, I, I'm iffy on some of this sort of stuff. But what I think we have here is, is that in the Jewish mindset, mindset, the sea was a place of turmoil, a place of chaos, a place of dragons. And, and that is why when Jonah goes out to sea, what does he find? He finds a disaster. And then he is cast into the sea. And what does he describe the sea? Sheol, the grave. And what does he find in Sheol? He finds a great dragon, a sea monster, that swallows him up. But by the promise of God, puts Jonah back on land. See, the Jews are land-faring people. Whenever Jesus goes and he's walking out of water, and the disciples are there at the sea, what do they find in the sea? Chaos and disaster. What does Christ come? He comes to, to calm the sea. This imagery is very important to, to the Jewish mind. I think that's what we have here. If there is no sea in heaven, is it because God is against water? It's rather that what sea represents, turmoil, disaster, the disease, death, all of that is no more. And new heavens and new earth, the old has passed away. And not where it ain't going to see. 
Ain't none of that stuff that, that has so defined us and hurt us. Verse 4, we see that there are no more tears, no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. I think that explains the language of seed. If no more seed, that means there's no more of these tears, death, mourning, crying, pain. I think it's clearly parallel in verse 1. There is no peace without justice. And so the purpose of the judgment of God was to secure that peace. Death, depravity, and the devil, the great dragon, will be no more. So not only will we find rest, but we will find peace. And thirdly, I believe we will find joy. Revelation chapter 19, verse 7 says, Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. The marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. Have you ever been to a wedding where no one's happy? I sure hope not. I, I, I was a little nervous about asking that question, right? If, if you go to a wedding and no one's happy, leave. Right? What are you doing there? Right? Just, just leave. It ain't going to work out. But you go to a wedding because everyone's happy. Even the people that don't want them to get married are happy, right? There's just something about a wedding that makes everyone happy. So too, when we see the marriage supper of the Lamb and the merging of, of Christ and His bride, heaven and earth, God and mankind, we see this is a, a joyous event, and we are told to rejoice and exalt. Give Him glory. Why? Because you can't separate the joy of Christ in His presence when you are in His presence. In fact, we see this elsewhere in Scripture. Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy. So if in his presence there is the fullness of joy, something we'll never grasp in this life, then to be in his presence is to possess his joy. 1 Peter 4, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. His glory is ultimately revealed in his final return. So rejoice in your sufferings with Christ, who himself suffered. Now that may be worth meditating on for your own soul this week. And as you rejoice in your own sufferings, you are rejoicing in the fullness of Christ and his glory when he shall return. You see what I mean? That, that the joy we long for there can be ours here and now. You see, I find it to be a better discipline to focus less on the aesthetics, streets of gold, well, I see my third cousin twice removed that I miss. And more on the crowning of heaven. We shall have peace. We shall have rest. We shall have eternal joy. And not one single business meeting. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how that was going to be taken. I want to illustrate some of this for you in a somewhat humorous way. A man by the name of Ken Fusen died in 2020, right before the pandemic. And he did something that now I want to do. I've said for years that I have every intention to preach my own funeral. Now, I know what you're thinking. How are we going to do that? Well, we have a thing called video cameras. And I'm going to, I'm going to preach my own funeral. I don't need no one else. Right? I'll make you all cry. I'll cry to you. Some of you may be rejoicing. I don't know. But um, this guy, Ken Fusen, wrote his own obituary. Can I read it to you? Ken Fusen, born June 23rd, 1956, died January 3rd, 2020, in Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha, of liver cirrhosis, and is stunned to learn that the world is somehow able to go on without him. 
Kent grew up in Granger and decided when he was a sophomore at Woodward Granger High School that he wanted to be a newspaper reporter. He covered sports for the Woodward Enterprise before leaving for the University of Missouri Columbia. He attended the university's famous School of Journalism, which is a clever way of saying, quote, almost graduated but didn't. Facing a choice between covering a story for the Columbia Daily Tribune or taking his final exams, Ken went for the story. He never claimed to be smart, just committed. In 1981, Ken landed his dream job working as a reporter for the Des Moines Register, where he was probably best known for writing a one-paragraph, one-sentence weather story that had been reprinted in four books. In 1996, Ken took the principal stand of leaving the Register because the Sun in Baltimore offered him more money. Three years later, having blown most of that money at, um, at a racetrack, he returned to the Register where he remained until 2008. In his newspaper work, Ken won several national feature writing awards, including the Ernie Pyle Award, ASNE Distinguished Writing Award, National Headliner Award, uh, Missouri Award twice, and Distinguished Writing Award in the Best of Garnet Contest, five times for his county. No, he didn't win a Pulitzer Prize, but he's dead now, so get off his back. <laughs> there are those who would suggest that becoming a freelance writer in the midst of the worst recession since the Great Depression was not the wisest choice. But Ken was never one to be guided by wisdom. He wrote the book Heading for Home with Ken Stock about the 1991 Norway baseball team that won the state championship in his final season. Good copy still available. In 2011, Ken accepted a job in the marketing department at Simpson College, where he remained until 2018. He enjoyed it very much, but once again forgot an important lesson. Always have a plan B. He was diagnosed with liver disease at the beginning of 2019, which is pretty ironic, given how little he drank. Eat your fruits and vegetables, kid. He is survived by his sons, Jesse and Max, and his stepson, Jerry Reese, who all brought Ken a surpassed joy. He hopes they will forgive him for not making the point more often. He loved his boys and was and is extraordinarily proud to be their father. For most of his life, Ken suffered from a compulsive gambling addiction that nearly destroyed him. But his church friends and a loving people at Gamblers Anonymous never gave up on him. Ken last placed a bet on September 5th, 2009. He died clean. He hopes that anyone who needs help will seek it, which is hard, and accept it when it is even harder. Miracles abound. Ken's pastor says God can work miracles for you and through you. Skepticism may be cool, and far too many, and for too many years Ken embraced it, but it was faith in Jesus Christ that transformed his life. That was the one thing he never regretted. It changed everything. For many years, Ken was a member of First United Methodist Church in somewhere and sang in the choir, which was a neat trick considering he couldn't read a note of music. The choir members will never know how much they helped him. He then joined the Lutheran Church of Hope. If you want to know what God's love feels like, just walk in those doors. Seriously, right now, we'll wait. Ken's not going anywhere. He had many character flaws. If he still owes you money, he's sorry. Sincerely, but he liked to think that he had a good sense of humor and a deep compassion for others. He prided himself on letting other drivers cut the line. He would give you the shirt off his back, even the ever-present food stain. Thank goodness nobody asked. It would have been it wouldn't have been pretty. He was also a master jumbo solver. And then other survivors he mentions. In lieu of flowers, Ken asked that everyone wear black armbands and wail in public during a one-year greeting. If that doesn't work, how about donating a book to the public library in Granger or Indianola? Yes, his obituary is probably too long. Ken always wrote too long. 
God is good. Embrace every moment, even the bad ones. See you in heaven. Any promises that you cut in life. I like that. I don't know about you. I like that. It's got enough humor in it. That can only be possible if what awaits you is the joy of heaven. You die in faith. We will open our eyes to joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love and your mercy. Let us live by faith. Let us live with the joy that awaits us. The fullness of the joy of Christ. Or let it come. A lot better with meditating on it. Well, there's a lot going on in Revelation, and we are confronted with an evil and wicked world. But if we would endure the great patience, there are ways a new city. Heaven and earth are finally united. We will be raised by the Spirit. We will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's something we're waiting for. Convict us in the time of invitation.
So this is our opportunity to really enjoy that. Even every funeral, we've not been able to minister to families who are going through the process of grief through a simple meal. And that is a vital ministry. I don't want us to underestimate how important that sort of ministry is. So we're going to get together. Invite everyone you meet this week. We will have enough food. We will, we will break the budget if we have to. Uh, but we want to uh, have as many people here as we can. Uh, we will find plenty of places to sit and eat. The main thing is that we get to see each other. We haven't seen a lot of people for a while. Um, so I want us to remedy that next week. And that, of course, will reopen. So it is kind of nice. We, we had a business meeting. Starting to get back in the swing of things. We're getting there. I know I tease, but it's good that we're, we're back into our regular schedule. So really appreciate it. Uh, so meal. Um, the July 17th is our free art sale. So we're going to need volunteers for that. BBS on the 11th, starting on the 11th. We volunteers for that, small groups, uh, and everything. So we got a lot going on, and we got a few other things we're planning. So um, uh, we will find rest in heaven. In the meantime, we got work to do. So starting next week, we're going to start working, okay? All right, thank you, guys. Um, let's be dismissed in, in prayer. And uh, Don Douglas, will you close us out in prayer? Father God, as we just heard, that we should look forward to heaven with joy. We should know that... Uh, you're faithful in what you have told us and that we know that we have a home in heaven and that uh, it's just a matter of time before we're there. I ask that we uh, share that with others, that we can share that joy that we have with others. And I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.